Amen. As we see it, let's pray. Father, we come before you grateful that we could gather in your name, grateful that your son has set us apart for um, for himself, for you, that we would get to participate in um, new creation now, but on the last day as well, when all things are made new and revealed, and that we get to be in your presence for eternity. Father, I thank you for all the souls here who have given themselves to you, and um, the way you have been sanctifying them, redeeming them, setting them apart. Lord, I pray that um, we can move forward in a powerful way, Father, that we would be able to be guided by your spirit, led by your spirit, and be a community of people who remember consistently that you dwell in our presence, Father. Help us grow more and more into the image of your son. Help us be like Christ and help us live a life that honors and glorifies you. Amen. We love you, we thank you, and we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen. All right, so what we're talking about um, today, we're kicking off a series of four classes, and... We're covering topics as brothers on how we can honor God. You know, we have a unique role in God's plan for um, honoring him. You know, as men, we have been uniquely called to represent the image of God. Now, this, the same is also true for women. They, they need to represent the image of God. Both of those callings are the same, but we have a unique calling nevertheless. And so we're going to cover four topics, and we may expand this a little bit longer um, over the course of the next two, three years, but definitely short term, we want to cover these topics. And A, I'm not under any illusion that what we cover will fix any problems overnight. The long-term solution for us to being the men that God is calling us to be is community and intentional community. And so I recognize that that's the long-term solution. So what we're going to talk about tonight is pre-awareness. Like, there, there are stages of awareness. There's pre-awareness where there's an issue, but you don't even know there's an issue. Then there's awareness that comes afterwards. So hopefully we leave here with a greater degree of awareness. Then we're going to talk about character. Character is probably the most important um, thing that we can pass on to one another, how to form our characters to be imitation of Christ. Then it's our calling. Everyone in here has a calling. You have a vocation. You have a job that you're doing. You have a role um, in your household, in your family, in your unit, and, and being faithful to that calling that God has called you to. And then last, but certainly not least, service. Service to the body of Christ, service to the community at large. That we have been uniquely called to do this. Now, everything I'm talking about here could easily be applied to the women to some extent, to a large extent. And so who is the image of God? The perfect image of God is Jesus. We are all called to imitate Jesus. Jesus is a standard. We're going to learn about Abraham today, but I don't want us to lose sight and say, I want to be like Abraham. No, you don't. You want to be like Jesus. Yeah. If Abraham were present with us today, he would say, I think I did all right. Jesus did better. So we want to imitate Jesus. Jesus is our standard. Amen. <clears throat> and so... I know we may not have been able to put it in these terms and in these words, but I think all of us along for what John talks about, the eternal life, the quality of life that God has to give us. A lot of us long for what John later calls the abundant life, the life to the full. And I really think a huge part of us experiencing that as a community is when all of us kind of move in the same direction trying to accomplish that. I don't think the, the eternal life or the abundant life in this side of eternity, we'll be able to experience apart from community. And so we have some real issues that 
we are having to overcome to get there. Um, our culture has um, synchronized its values with the Christian values. And so a lot of us, myself included, we take values that we have from our culture, the world at large, and we connect it to what Jesus expects. And sometimes it's hard to differentiate between the two. So that's a potential challenge. Our families of origin, how you were raised, how you were brought up, who impacted you, who gave you, that impacts your discipleship so much, guys. Sometimes you wish it didn't, and it shows up in, in yeah. when you transition in stages of life, when you become a parent, and in other areas, you're like, wow, that it really impacts us versus what Christ is actually calling us to do. Sometimes we do things the LaFrance way instead of the Jesus way, and we conflate the two. And then we have these practices that are just not healthy that we're all engaged in. All of us know the term vegging, you know, like I'm vegging out on TV. You know, you know, the vegetative state is not a healthy state to be in. <laughs> and yet we say that when it comes to like, I was, vegetate, I, I, I was vegging on TV. I was doing like, we have some of these practices that really hinder us from being um, what God is calling us to do. And then more importantly, I think a lot of us have forgotten our why. Like, why do we still follow Jesus? We could get on autopilot really easily. Like, well, I had nothing else going on, so I'll show up here tonight. Oh, yeah, you know, I guess I'm doing this Christian thing and we could forget and it's easy to forget. That's why the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, say, remember, remember, remember. And so usually when I think of um, times together as men, I'm grateful for those times. I'm grateful for um, the people who put together some incredible times. But, you know, I, I, I get it. Sometimes it can feel like oh, here goes the. At what point are we going to beat our chest and talk about we're men and we're going to go up the mountain and chop some trees and roar at each other like, and, you know, come back and like put the steak on the table, lady. Like, I get that. And I, unfortunately, I've been there. <laughs> I've been in those lessons and I'm like, all right. You know, and, and <laughs> I like to think I, I like to think that I'm a dude, dude. But there's other things I don't really get hyped about. Like if you're like, hey, guys, we're going to go cut some trees. Instantly, um, you lost me. I'm like, I don't want to cut no trees. There's nothing cool about that. Um, so I hear that. And yet there is something profound. I think we are all wired. Most of us are wired to want a high degree of discipline. Like there's something about the disciplined life that attracts men in particular. Like we see someone who's just on top of their game and we talk about the person all day. This is why incredible athletes blow us away. This is why someone who's like really organized and have color code, you're like, the whole day if you're in a conversation with a guy, they're like, did you see this person? They're like so organized. There's something that draws us to that. And my fellowship with some of the sisters, we sub- they suddenly talk about the women who are like killing it in discipline or killing it in athletics. They just don't. They may be impressed, but it's not like we'll spend the whole day talking about who caught the biggest fish. Like, you see that he was like, Ugh. it was like amazing, it was great. Because there's something internally in us that is driving to live the way God potentially has called us to live. And so we want to be intentional about living into that. How many of you are familiar with the, uh, the psychologist Jordan Peterson? Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson in like 2017 to like 2019 or 20 just develop a huge following of young men under the age of 30. And you know what his primary message was? Clean your room. <laughs> clean your room. But he said it in such a way like, I believe in you, that you could clean this room and then you could change the world. You know what he was giving those young men? Autonomy. 
Now, as followers of Jesus, we don't want autonomy. We want to give our lives to Christ, but we want him to drive it and him to move it. That's where I think Jordan's message fell short. Because after you clean your room, you quickly realize nothing else is in your control. But he, you, if you read his 10 rules for life, I never read it. I'm pretty sure you quickly find that out. But we are called to give our lives to something. And I think there's something innate about us in particular that we want to give our lives to. There's something innate about us, the way God has designed us as men, that we almost feel like a failure when we don't accomplish something. Ah, mm-hmm. oh, man, I got, I got a four-year degree, but I'm not doing this and I'm not doing that. There's something about us that wants to strive. I, I read in, um, in one of my business books when I was back in school, men are like fired up, knock it out the park. I guess that would be to the right. Knock it out the park and like killing it. Or they're like struggling. There's very few men who live right here. They're like, we, we just, just the extremes. You know what I mean? And you see it in most settings. You're like the guy at the workplace who wants to become the CEO one day. And the guy who's just like, I hate it here and I never want to be here. Like there's suddenly a guy who's like, yeah, actually, I kind of like this, but I could be okay. You, you see that in other relationship dynamics with, with our sisters. But with men, it's kind of like the two extremes. Suddenly there's someone like, I'm actually really content being in the middle a little bit. I know that there is those brothers who do exist, and that's awesome. But I would say, generally speaking, we're on the extremes. I think the other thing that's really important in this age of um, mental health and psychology, which I'm for, we have confused the gospel's portrayal of what it means to walk with Jesus with what the secular world calls self-actualization. We've taken what the gospel calls um, self-giving love, cruciformity, and turn it into a kind of, it's all about me and my feelings and what's going on, and your feelings count. God cares about you. He created you to have feelings, and yet those feelings are also under the submission of the Lordship of Christ. Feelings are important. Feelings are critical, and I think we went too far on the other end where we told people you can't feel anything, and facts need to drive everything. But now we're on the other end where it's like, My emotions kind of got to get behind it and everything else. And I really hope during this time together, we can start to see a bigger picture of what God wants to do for us as a community of believers. And so I hope that Jesus' mission, Jesus' ministry can inspire us the way Jordan Peterson's call to clean a room does. Like, clean your room. I've never seen someone say that so eloquently, so powerfully for so many people to follow. He has so many people still following him to this very day on that cleaning the room tour. Let's go to um, Genesis chapter 18. So this is going to be more interactive. That was just the intro. From here, we're going to be more interactive. That was a nine-minute intro. It was supposed to be six, but I, got, I lost my path somewhere along the way. <laughs> I got caught up in I, I lacked the discipline. It wasn't inspiring. Um, can I get someone to read Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 8? And 18, sorry. Beginning in verse 1 and ending in verse um, 20. Go for it. The Lord appeared to Abram near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. 
He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way, now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you said. So Abraham hurried into the tent of Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seas of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There, in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind them. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, Yes, you did laugh. When the men got up to leave, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him, so that he will direct his children and his household after him, keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin is so grievous. Nice. I thought that was a good spot to end, you know, grievous sin. Okay, um, so what stands out to you guys about Abraham in this story? Good host. He's a good host. Like, what about his hosting makes him a good host? He, he gives the best of what he has to his guests. He gives the best of what he has to his guests. He was attending them, so he was right next to them as they were eating their stuff. Nice. Anyone else? What stands out? And, and they were strangers. I mean, I, I don't think he'd ever met these men before. And he, like, treated them like, like the best man. Yeah. Yeah. Tim, you were going to say? Well, I was going to say, he didn't know them, but he bowed down to them as if he did know them. And mm-hmm. that's their significance in some capacity. Yeah, so the story, like Lincoln mentioned, are there complete strangers to him? Yeah. If you read through, Abraham shows up in the Bible in an intentional kind of way, Genesis 12. Is there any command for him to be hospitable to strangers that you guys are aware of? There's just something intrinsic about what just took place that God was like, this guy gets it. Like, he saw complete... How many of us would hold strangers like that present in 2024 now? You know, it's kind of weird, you know? Like, bow down to someone who never... You like. You know, the first thing, some of us quickly, quickly think about our safety. You know what I mean? Like, if I let this person in my house, this could happen, that could happen. And you know what happened the chapter before with Abraham? He was circumcised. But he probably was still probably a little bit in pain, and he's like, hey... I'm going to serve these people. I'm going to give to these people. I'm going to make sure they meet, get their needs met. 
And I think God was going to bless him with Isaac regardless, regardless of what he did here. But I think it became very clear for God in this particular situation to be like, this is where this is where my promise needs to come true. This is where the blessing of all nations. Like I need a guy like this to be able to set the pace for another generation of people for what it's going to be like to represent me in this world. And so Isaac uniquely um, is given a legacy from his father of hospitality, which is powerful when we consider um, that becomes the way that the entire Eastern culture around like Israel and the different surrounding areas, they, they all look up to Abraham primarily because of his, of his ability to be a host. Abraham is known as like the chief host. He's like it. He, he, he's the epitome of what, what people in that culture strive for. I've never done any of the Israelite tours, but many people share a great deal about the hospitality of the people um, from that part of the world. And they think a huge part of it is because of Abraham. And so what does Abraham do with these strangers? He, treat, he treats them with dignity. Like he bows, he meets their need. He treats them as if they're made in the very image of God. He didn't need us. They didn't need special titles. They didn't need anything for Abraham to treat them that way. Like, you know, again, most of us, if name your favorite politician showed up, you'd be like, oh, I'm going to clean the house. I'm going to do this. But name your favorite um, homeless or houseless person. You're like, I'm not going to clean up. This, this is already clean enough considered where they've already been. Now, some of us are really tenderhearted and we would clean up even for our friends who are homeless. But a lot of us naturally just won't go there. And so, instead of meeting these folks with suspicion, he met them with incredible hospitality. And then God says something very important. He's like, shall I keep from Abraham what I'm about to do? Because surely he will be a great nation. And then what God says here in verse 18 is important for our conversation here. Abraham will surely be a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he promised. And what did he promise to Abraham? That through his seed, he'll be the blessing to the nations. And so Abraham has a unique calling in this situation. His calling is to raise his children up in the way of the Lord in doing what is right and what is just. It's through Abraham's example that the people of Israel will have a baseline for the Torah that they will inherit later of what it means to be a righteous and just person. A person who brings um, Zedekat and Mishpah. And so God chose Abraham, but the, the Hebrew word for chose right there is Yadah. Anyone knows where Yadah comes from, what Yadah means? Yada, yada. Doesn't it mean what? Kind of. It, it does have that connotation. In fact, that wouldn't even be a bad definition. It's the phrase, it comes from the root family of the Hebrew word for when Adam and Eve knew each other. So you're right when you say union. God not only chose him, he's like, I, I embrace Abraham. I have an intimacy 
with Abraham. I have this close bond with Abraham that he's going to teach another generation the way of the Lord and right behavior and justice. And so the reason God's choosing Abraham is for the purpose of blessing the entire world. Now, when you guys hear right, righteousness and justice, what comes to mind? Even if you know the Hebrew meaning of those things, please enlighten us. What comes to mind when you hear righteousness and justice? Zedek, Zedek and Mishpah. Just restoring things to the way they ought to be. Which one would you say that is? Both of them together? or? Okay, yeah. yeah. Anyone else? Righteousness and justice. It's always in the, it's always in the context of community. A- absolutely. Righteousness and justice within community. Abraham's family was going to bring that. Lincoln. So I think righteousness is, is like focused on obeying the law. Whereas justice is more around like social justice. And so I would flip it, but yes. Okay, like, but, um, okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, more social and, and just treating people right and being compassionate. Yeah, that would get unpacked even more later. But in the book of Romans, Paul makes a very strong point to the Jews that righteousness existed long before the law. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was the whole point, was Abraham was considered righteous by what he did when there was no law. Mm-hmm. And so it was a, it was, yeah, I mean, later on, righteousness involved being obedient and following the law. But at this point, uh, the righteousness was all about um, his relationship with God and his relationship with other people. Absolutely, Fred. That, the, um, that righteousness, yeah, that's all. Amen. I mean, he said relationship in general, like not just community, but relationship. Now think about that. If everyone decided to listen to our better angels, our better moral compass, like Fred said, even before Torah is written in explicit detail, would the world be a better, better place? If we just sat back and listened to the, I want to treat you like um, Lincoln was alluding to, that righteousness is relational, I want to treat you the right way. Justice has a more um, legal sense to it. Like if someone breaks a law, you want to say this is it. Or if there is a law, let's uphold it. Let's, let's hold to this standard. And we're not talking about morality here, so we don't need to talk about breaking unjust laws. But... Just know that God is not for any unjust laws. That's not God's position because he is good. And so Abraham's family is supposed to bring about righteousness and justice. It's supposed to bring about the way that the world would want. You know, this is a big part of what it means to be a student of Jesus. He, He magnifies this, but when we become disciples of Jesus, apprentices of Jesus, we start to manifest God's goodness and justice in this world. At least that's supposed to be the call. Now, at times, it's really difficult to keep that at the forefront of our mind. It's difficult to keep it in front of us. But this is the call. And um, I love this quote from Irenaeus. He says, the glory of God is the living human. Like, God glories in us living as humans. Now, in reference point to living like his son. That once we live as his son, God's like, that's what I always wanted for you. You know, for many of us who are parents, we want the absolute best for our children. 
And what God would say is living like my son is what's absolute best for you. So do we think this is possible? Do we think this is still realistic? And how does it play its role in us as men? Mark 9, 24 says, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. I do believe, Mark 9, 24, but help me overcome my unbelief. Everyone in here is called to be a blessing to one another, relationally, the community. We're called to live in right relationship with God, and we're called to practice justice the way Christ will call us to practice justice. And again, we have the New Testament and its teachings to kind of guide us, but I think sometimes we settle for... um, Showing up to church, if you will. Now, that's an oxymoron statement. You don't show up to church. Church is the body. You know, but I get it. We get it. That's what we talk about. Like, hey, I showed up to church. I'm not trying to go to church today. I don't have my church friends. Well, you got to understand the metaphor is the gathered assembly under the submission of Jesus. So if it's just Connor and I and we're hanging out and we're under the submission of Jesus, that is church. That is ecclesia. That is us living it out. So this... This night, this evening, is a form of church, an expression of church. But I think sometimes we settle just for this. This is what happens on Sunday or what happens Wednesday. And Christianity becomes out of sight, out of mind for the rest of the week. And that's easy. And I really don't want to judge you guys because I know I've been there as well. There's a lot of different things pulling at us, a lot of different things vying for our attention. Like we have dreams, we have desires, we have things we want to accomplish. We have relationships we want to keep up. We have thoughts and opinions and things that are engaging us in a real powerful way. So it's hard to keep the way of Jesus before us consistently. But the big part of the reason why that's so difficult is we've bought into the American lie that we need to do this independently. You know, we separated our families from the will of God almost. You know, we say things like, man, I want my family time. And then I can get time with the rest of the church. Instead of being like, man, is that not the family of Christ? You know what Jesus said on the cross when he was standing in front of Mary and John? This is your mother. Behold, woman. He doesn't even see. He never calls Mary Mary. He's like, woman, this is your son. And she's like, but instantly on the cross, he's like, this is family right here. Mary had so many other kids. You've seen how many kids she had, it says in Mark. But he's like, John, unrelated to these other kids, that's your mother. Take care of her. I'm almost certain for the rest of John's life, for the rest of Mary's life, he popped in on her. He took care of her. He met her need. James was probably like, I can take care of her. I'm an elder. I, I know how to help. He's like, I was entrusted with your mother, man. I want to take care of your mother. That's what I'm going to do. But we don't have those sort of familial bonds because our culture has taught us there's the nuclear family. There's the extended family. Then there's the church family. Yeah. What scripture has taught us is Anyone who does the will of my brother, father, sister is my brother and sister. So he takes the idea of the nuclear family, turns it up on his head, and says anyone yielding to the ministry and teachings of Jesus is now family. That feels so counterintuitive. And it's confronted with a lot of issues because, as I mentioned before, our family's origin makes it harder for us to do family. There's a way that you have dinner if you grew up in a La France household that is probably different than if you grew up in a Grimm household. There's a way you have disagreements if you grew up in a Connie household that's probably different than you grew up in a Fowler household. And instead of us saying, like, okay, we take all of those things 
And to whatever extent we need to yield to Jesus, we yield to Jesus. We kind of say, we'll play in our respective corners. What radically transformed the first century, what radically transformed the world, is followers under the lordship of Jesus really living as followers. Jesus says, you'll know my disciples by the way that they love. Mm -hmm. Like the world will know my disciples by the way that they love. And I, I can almost guarantee you the love that the disciples showed for one another wasn't theoretical. I can't see theoretical love. Like all of you in here, if we took a look, do you love every Christian in here the way Christ would love you? Absolutely. We're all bubble, yes. I think. <laughs> but if we went outside, they'd be like, I, I couldn't even tell that there's a special kind of love here. But if there was a special kind of love, they'd be like, wow, that's, that's pretty impressive. That's like, wow, why do you treat this guy this way? Is he your best friend? How you define best friend? He's my brother in Christ. You're like, wow, that's amazing how you treat each other. And this is the call that Abraham, big picture, was being called, called, called to by God. And so how do we get there? I think first and foremost, we talked about pre-awareness. We need to examine ourselves. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. We need to examine ourselves. I think as Christians, we should be in a regular habit, not a daily habit, not a weekly habit, but a regular habit of examining ourselves. Can I get someone to read 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5? Go for it, Tim. Test and evaluate yourself to see whether you are in the faith and living your lives as committed believers. Examine yourselves, not me, or do not, or do you not recognize this about yourselves? Is that the Amplify? Yeah. Nice. Test and examine yourself. I think we should have a degree of confidence. Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We should have a degree of confidence. But as followers of Jesus, we should examine ourselves. We shouldn't wait until someone says, man, I'm, I'm wondering what's going on. We should periodically, again, not every day, we should examine, like, am I in alignment with the will of Jesus? I was reading, because, you know, we're doing this series on John. I was reading about the crucifixion account, and one thing stood, up, stood out to me. Um, Caiaphas turned into innocent Jesus, and he said to Pilate, we got to hurry up and basically get this guy killed because we don't want to be unclean on um, the Sabbath. I'm like, wow, the disconnect. Like, Wow. You're more worried about being unclean because of that? You don't think that you're lying on this dude is a bigger issue? Just Pilate was just experiencing a huge emotional disconnect at that point. But how many of us have done the same thing? You know, we get radically indignant about something, and then we turn around and live in hypocrisy right here. And we're like, <laughs> God's like, wow, dude, like you really, you, that really rubbed you the wrong way? That didn't? You're like, no. <laughs> There's an explanation for why I did whatever that is. <laughs> this other thing I'm upset about. And so part of that only comes when we have self-examination. When we pick up the Bible, when we pick up the teachings of Jesus, and we look in response to one another, to what the teachings say. And so here are some tell signs if we're struggling. Now, I, I, I recognize that the spiritual journey is roundabout. The same way God did not take the Israelites out of Egypt and gave them the straight line through um, Philistine, to, to the promised land, the same way in our spiritual journey, it's, it is sort of roundabout. You're going to mature over time. 
but we have to be intentional about being obedient. And there'll be times of testing where you'll see what you're made of. And I think this is part where I really want to bring our awareness. Those times of testing are so important to us. Sometimes we move past what God has exposed to us instead of slowing down and be like, what did he just expose here? What is he calling my attention to? And again, the worst thing we could do is ignore those times of testing because those, when we ignore it, it just creates the severe blind spot. I believe wholeheartedly in here, those of you who have great intimacy with one another, one another can think of five, six areas where the person you have great intimacy is not like Jesus. And it's glaring in your head this way, this person is not like Jesus. Now, the issue is you've never told them that. And part of the fear is they're going to tell you where you're not like Jesus. And then everyone's going to be like, then who's like Jesus? And then we're going to come up with, with, with pithy sayings like, I'm not perfect, I'm forgiven, and all this other stuff. Instead of saying, wow, man, speak into my life, brother. Speak into my life. Help me grow. Help me mature. Be patient with me. Be kind with me. But help me grow. Help me mature. If you see where I'm not like Christ, please say something. And so signs that we're struggling and sometimes it doesn't come out as complete sin. Irritability. If you're consistently irritable, that isn't a fruit of the spirit. You know, love, joy, kindness, irritability. No, that's not a fruit of the spirit. Like if you just get upset about every little thing, there's something going on with you spiritually. You're not doing well spiritually if you get upset about every single thing. Hypersensitivity. If someone points anything out of you, you catastrophize. You're like, oh, my God, this person doesn't think. You're like, wow, dude, it's okay. No one thinks you're the Christ. No one thinks you're perfect. So irritability and hypersensitivity, they're both on the same spectrum. Restlessness. I've been struggling with restlessness lately. I can't sleep. I can't. Instantly, I, I, from, as soon as this night ends, I start thinking about tomorrow and all the million things I got to do tomorrow. And I'm like, oh, I just can't sleep. I wake up in the middle of the night or 3 a.m. And instantly, the 10 things I need to do come through my mind. I'm like, that's not normal. That's not healthy. I need to be able to be like, God gives sleep to the righteous. There's a psalm about that, I think. But many of us are restless. Now, your restlessness may, I don't sleep with my phone in my room. So you might wake up and instantly you're scrolling. You just start going on social media and you're like scrolling away until you don't even know how many times you just were doing this with your phone because you're experiencing great restlessness. Overworking. Our society as a whole, as Americans, we love people who work hard. We love people who never rest. That's nothing like the spirit of God. That's nothing like God. But in America, we praise it. We're like, burn yourself to the ground, and then we'll replace you. But at least we'll talk good about you while you did it. You're like, look at that dude. Didn't he always work hard? He worked until his back broke. Okay, you get, get whatever um, handicapped stuff. Let's replace you. You don't got the job anymore. You'd be like, what? What? I gave myself to this. And you should have not gave yourself to that. Emotional numbness. I remember when I first came into the church, I used to be excited about everyone's excitement. And now sometimes people are really excited about something, and I'm just like, you know, how many of you remember, you know, it almost happens almost regularly, right? Like, you get around a young Christian, and they say something that's, like, absurd. I want to see everyone in my family become a disciple in the next three weeks. Instantly, you scoff. <laughs> like, Sarah, you're like, that's not going to happen. 
Instead of just being like, wow, that's incredible faith. I hope that happens for you. I'm going to walk you through if it don't happen. But instantly, just the scoffing. Mm-hmm. You know, if I say, guys, I want to see us grow by 100. Scoff. <laughs> 100, why not 101? Why not 103? Why not 104? What's wrong with him? This I still see count, 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 count. And you're like, whoa. Whoa. Can we just see the souls for who they are? But instead, there's this, just this numbness to even the will and the desire of God. Someone asks you about a quiet time. You're like, I don't. You do the air quotation. I don't have quiet times. <laughs> I feel see robot. <laughs> and you're like, what is going on? Reading your Bibles now makes you a robot. Wanting to connect with God makes you a robot. We don't question that heart. We question the person who asks us if we're reading our Bible. That's the disconnect I'm talking about emotionally. As I'm like, why did I instantly go there? Why did they, their suggestion or asking me about reading the Bible offend me so much that I needed to belittle them for even requesting that? Escapist behavior. Yeah, there's, there's the clear, easy ones. Pornography is the easy escapist behavior. But some of us, you know, we look at our screen time and you're like, you're on your phone for 13 hours? 10 hours? You watch every single season Netflix has available for every single thing? <laughs> We're laughing, but it's serious. I get, I'm in fellowship with some of you guys, and I'm like, you watch this show, that show, this show, this show. How do you find the time? I know you're married. I know you got some kids. I know you got a job. How do you find the time? It's called I'm staying up till 1 a.m., 2 a.m. watching this stuff. I'm escaping. I watch Seinfeld. I told some people I watch Seinfeld. I've been reading, you know, Dallas Wheeler. I, I've been reading a lot of Dallas Wheeler. He always hates on Seinfeld. He's like, oh, this brain dead TV. And it is. And there's a part of me that's like, can I do that for 30 minutes? Of course. The Lord isn't going to strike me down for a 30 minute show. But it's when that becomes just this instant, like, I just went through an entire season of Seinfeld. And my box is eating cheese doodles. And you're like, Steve, what's going on in your life? <laughs> um, what am I avoiding? What am I running from? When there's a disconnect from our identity or calling. Well, you wake up every day, you don't even know why you're waking up. You don't know why you're here. It's not clear to you the will of God in your situation. It's not clear to you why God is using you in your household. And you wake up feeling like, if I died, would it even matter to anyone? With the exception of my spouse. Instead of a clear sense, a lot of Christians, believe it or not, feel a clear sense of... I know where I would be missed if I wasn't here because I recognize where I serve. I recognize where I give. I recognize what God is calling me to. There's a number of us who live like, I don't know. If I died, we'll just move on. Life would be as is. When it gets really bad, another tell sign is we don't, we're not able to attend to our human needs. Guys, shower. You're like, man, I got no time. I can't even shower. There's something radically off with your life. You know? You're like, man, I got to eat right, but I got to be on the go all the time, so I got to eat fast food. You're like, then something's wrong. You got to examine that. I got to examine that. I love eating fast food because it's quick and easy, so I can keep doing what I got to do. But I got to step back and go, do I have to always be on the go? Can I slow down, prepare a meal, be present to my family? We don't attend to human needs. Our cars could have all sorts of Cheerios in there. And we're like, listen, man, now the Cheerios are part of the background. They molded in and melded into the seat. 
I was looking at Brian's baby seat. That, that Cheerio I couldn't get out. I was scratching it and it ended up wounding my nail. I was like, <laughs> I'm like, this thing is melted into the seat. I'm like, I got issues, man. I'm like, I got to slow down to clean his seat a little bit more consistently. Part of me is like, he sits on it. So it's his own punishment as well. Um, by the time you get around to it, he'll outgrow it. <laughs> right? He'll turn into a tree. <laughs> he'll outgrow it, and the fungus will turn into a tree. And you're like, what is that? And we're like, that's my failure right there <laughs> in full growth. We hoard energy. You know, you're the person who say no to everything. Truthfully, most of the men in here say no. I know your wives will say yes. If I needed something done, if we had a need in this church, your wives are the ones I would want to talk to to get it done. You're like, oh, there's a huge need in the child ministry. Well, if I ask these brothers, they're going to tell me a million and one reasons why they can't do it. Let me talk to their wives. And somehow, magically, the women come back and, we can do it. We got the schedule and everything. Amazing how that happens, man. I wonder what the conversations are like in private. A little bit, I like, I'm going to get this dude in trouble, but I don't care. <laughs> he needs to serve the living God. But I think there's a huge part of us hoarding energy. You're like, hey, man, how many times in the fellowship we're like, we should get together. We should connect more. But, you know, I have no time to do that. Kids, my boys could come. I, I know, and, and I've been challenged on this from peers, from my own wife. My kids could come to a lot of the appointments I have. We keep it pretty PG when I'm connecting with most of you guys. Stephen would not walk away and be like, that was evil that I just heard. Why was I here? But instead, I'm like, well, you know, I got the kids and whatever. Really, I just don't want to be outside. I want to be inside. I pay rent. I'm never home. I want to be home eventually. <laughs> but I got to own that. I got to be like, yeah, come over. Yeah, we'll talk. Maybe we won't, but let's, let's just hang out. So I said a lot. Let's go to second. Uh, let's go to Titus. Can I get a volunteer to read Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 and verse 2? I mean, verse 1 through verse 2, and then jump to verse 6. So read Titus chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 2, then read verse 6. Go for it, Bob. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Nice. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled, be self-controlled. Yeah. He's like, don't teach him anything else. <laughs> He's like, don't say wrap up that self-control. We'll move on to greener pastures, but you're going to spend the next 15 years teaching them that. Um, there, is, there is a generational dynamic that, we, that God in his infinite wisdom wanted to pass down to us. That we would learn from the older men. That younger men, we would learn self-control. That there would be a generational dynamic where we would glean, as, as, as Hebrews says, we would learn from people whose outcome of faith we really appreciate. Let's go to um, 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Um, verse 1 to verse 2. Can I get someone to read that? Second, go for it, Juan. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 to 2. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. 
Amen. So I really think it's important that we have men who've walked with the Lord for 30 plus years, 40 plus years, and they've been entrusted with some incredible things on how to be faithful followers of Jesus. And we want to uplift that. We want to honor that. And we want to imitate their faith as they imitate Christ. And I think a huge part of um, our present moment now is sometimes we go to Google and Google is not bad. I have you. I got a whole bunch of searches on my Google stuff. But I realize sometimes, especially when it comes to life stuff and when it comes to following Jesus, a lot of times talking to more mature disciples, I quickly learned that if they don't know, they could point me to someone who do know whatever my issue is. And they're trying to get the same outcome as me. So my wife and I, we were talking about some of you have heard the gentle parenting movement and like it's like, you know, good and a lot of good stuff. But one of the things that she and I both realized really quickly, as much as we can appreciate that, they don't have the same goal that we have. Like Julie and I want to raise children who will be formed into the image of Christ. The gentle parenting movement wants to raise children who have self-actualization. They have this emotional well-being. We want that, but we want so much more. And so the gentle parenting movement is not kind of trying to make disciples of my kids. They're trying to get my kids to be emotionally stable, which isn't a bad goal, but I have a higher goal for my kids. And so sometimes you could, we can could listen to the gentle parenting movement and they're like, well, when it comes to areas of faith, you don't want to want to push that on them because that might upset their emotional equilibrium. And you're like, okay, the world is not calling fairsies on this. They're not saying, okay, don't push your faith so we won't push anything else. They're like, yeah, you don't push your faith and I'm going to push whatever. And now you're like, but you did gentle parenting movement. And they're like, well, we weren't trying to make disciples. We were trying to make equal emotionally equilibrium kids. Did you get that or did you not? <laughs> you're like, I don't know, but should not have been listening to you in the first place. Not wholeheartedly, at least. Again, I'm for if you if you are connected to someone who's into the gentle parenting movement, I'm for it insofar as it's aligned with the will of Jesus. And the areas where it's not, then I'm not for it. Amen. Let's go to First Peter chapter five. So again, I've learned a lot from our mature brothers and sisters, even from some of their um, bad examples in raising children. First yeah. uh, Peter chapter five, beginning in verse one. Can I get someone to read that? Verse 1 through 7. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 through 7. Iggy. To the elders among you, I too as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, the one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock, and in order that, that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, uh, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And then, and when the Christ, yeah, when the chief shepherd appears, you receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourself in humility towards each other because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Amen. That's powerful. Again, this is not carte blanche to do whatever someone older than you and the Lord says. That's, 
Jesus is not an abusive leader and he would not put us under that sort of tyranny. We're under the great shepherd Christ. However, there is a wisdom. Now, in this context, it's more elders in an official appointed role. But there is a wisdom to listening to the to the maturity of people who are in a different life stage than you that actually have closely to what Christ is calling us to. So I'm more prone to, not that I wouldn't listen to um, someone with a challenging marriage. You can learn, but you have to discern really well. I'm more prone to listen to, say, Lincoln or Fred or Lenny or Bob because they've been married and they haven't divorced, right? So I, I hear that and I'm like, okay, brothers, what, what do you have to say on this situation? Then I am to listen to the person who's been divorced seven times, right? Now, the person who's been divorced seven times might have some wisdom for me. You know, they've got a lot of what not to do. <laughs> so, so I'm like, okay, you've got a different level of experience. But if the person who's been divorced seven times says, okay, here, do exactly like I did, you'd be like, whoa, <laughs> I don't want exactly what you got. There's a wisdom there. Some of you have cross the mountain of debt free there's a wisdom there on talking to you on how do you live debt free how did you get there what decision i heard this dave ramsey guy go one way but i don't know him he's been a billionaire since i knew him and so how did you get over there there's a wisdom that we can listen to there are mature brothers and sisters who've been fruitful in every season of their life in terms of growing more and more like christ in terms of helping people know jesus and you're like, that's what I want. How, how did you balance your work-life schedule to become fruitful in every season? Again, there's other people who may not be good examples, but you can learn from their bad examples. The scriptures are filled with people with bad examples that we could be like, I'm not trying to be like Solomon with all these wives. You know what I mean? Like, it's cool. We get to see Solomon and be like, bro, you were a bad example, but you helped so many of us. And we all believe now 700 wives is one too many. <laughs> like... You've convinced us, Solomon. <laughs> we didn't even include the concubine, Solomon. <laughs> but I will say, again, we want a red flag, if you will, if a mature brother says, don't get other people's advice, that's a red flag. Don't listen to them, just listen to me. Red flag, red flag. If they're mature and they've been following Jesus, they're fine with you getting more advice because the scriptures encourage you to get more advice. If they're mature and they're following Jesus, they're fine with you going in a different direction than their advice. They're like, you heard me, you understood me, you want to go in that way? Cool. Hopefully it goes goes well for you. It's a red flag if they're like, you better not go in that direction and make you feel forced to go in whatever direction they're driving you in. So I say that to say we should seek it, but if you're concerned about being abused... That's a, that's a uh, protector. One of the things that I think is really important as we work as a multi-generational church is we have to learn how to work together well. And as men, we have to do a great job of that, working together well. We, you know, the scriptures in First Timothy says, treat older men like fathers and, and rebuke them gently. You know, I've never rebuked my dad before. But when I think about um, having a tough conversation with a mature brother, I do think about my dad. I'm like, how would my dad receive this? Well, my dad's a hard man. I said, he would hear things in a hard way. So I try to find a better balance than who my dad is. 
But on the flip, the scripture says, do not exasperate your children. I do not exasperate. I think our mature brothers and sisters, you have, I mean, our mature brothers, no sisters are here. Our mature brothers, you have so much we can learn from. But at times, and I'm not explicitly talking about this group, but I am talking about this group. At times, it can be exasperating listening to what things could be done better instead of just putting your hand to the plow and making it better. It can be very challenging sometimes. Like, hey, you know, when we were coming up, man, kids came to midweek, Devo, D-time, intern meeting, all this other stuff. And instead of being like, you know, I see this person drowning and trying to make sure that this kid loves Jesus, loves me, blah, blah, blah. Let me start being a supportive, encouraging presence in this person's life. Let me say, oh, dude, you're doing a great job. Here's one thing I would encourage, though. Every two weeks, give one encouragement after you say you're doing a great job because people are drowning. But I think a lot of times, you know, you're like, just tell it like it is. Let's straight shoot, man. Let's just shoot people. Think about that, shooting. Tell it like it is. That sounds like mean, you know, and the, the, the fruit of the spirit is not mean. You should read Galatians 5.22. No meanness in the fruit of the spirit. I think the other thing is sometimes there's this learned helplessness. And I get it. Back in the day, our church was like this hierarchy. It was this, this like man at the tippy top of the pillar, military. And so sometimes I hear from our mature brothers and sisters, man, back in the day, we used to do it like this and we used to do it like that. But the young guys ain't listening. And I'm like, did you actually talk to them? He's like, I kind of vaguely mentioned something, but I didn't change it. And you're like, man, be gentle, be encouraging, be creative and try to get whatever it is you're looking for done and keep persevering to get it done. So if I were in a D group and I didn't like the way Connor led my D group, I would sit with Connor. Connor come in. Let's talk about the sports. We talked about sports. Then we ate wings and then it was whatever. And I'm like, man, he didn't ask me about my sin. He didn't ask me how I'm doing spiritually. He didn't ask me if I was reaching out to people. Connor, like, are we just wasting our time here? You think that's going to change him? No, Connor and I are going to be in contention now. He's going to be like, Steve is like this grumpy old grumposaurus. And then I'm like, Connor's this loose, non-biblical. Why is he even leading in this situation? And now we're stuck. Or, man, Connor, I appreciate that you're so relational. You're so solid. But I think if we introduce more of the scriptures, it'd be powerful. In fact, how about this? You do what you do the first 20 minutes, and I get 20 minutes where we can talk about spiritual thought. Are you cool with that? Connor, more than likely, be like, yeah, dude. Give the spiritual thought. And then we go, and it's going good. And now I'm like, okay, now the other thing is we need to start confessing sin. Let me bring it up to Connor. Connor, man, you know, I, I love what we're doing here, but I realize we got to be confessing consistently. We don't need to wait to this appointment. But part of us moving toward confessing consistently is if we start in disappointment. Can we talk about how we're doing spiritually? And maybe we can use scriptures to build each other up? Yeah, dude. Yeah, dude. <laughs> so I'm not robbing Connor of his influence. I'm not taking my ball and going home. I'm trying to build Connor up and help him be who God is calling him to be while I'm under his leadership in this season. Amen. That takes a lot of humility. That takes a lot of work. And that's why in First Peter says, everyone humble yourselves. Do not think more highly of yourselves than you are. 
And again, it's not always easy. It's hard sometimes to be under leadership. Like some of the guys 50 and over, you guys are been under leaders who are like Hall of Famers in my eyes. It's like the corniest Hall of Fame in the world because no one else knows these people if I shout them out right now. Only you guys would know these people. <laughs> the rest of the people. So I'm like, man, you know, you were led by John Brush. Who's John Brush? Who, who's that? You know, like, you know, or you were led by oh, Wyndham, man. Like, Wyndham. I don't know Wyndham. I heard of Wyndham. I think I heard of Who's Wyndham? When, where? You know, or like, oh, Jimmy Allen. Like, oh, man, you know, Jimmy, he's like, come on, dude. He's like. The rest of you guys are like, those names mean nothing to me. <laughs> But I'm humbled by that. Every time I come up and speak, I recognize who I'm speaking to and who has heard other people speak before. People that I would much rather be sitting at their feet too, to be honest with you. And yet and still, we want to be a humble people. So how can we become men who will have great vocation? We need one another. We need one another. Mature brothers, maybe we don't have a lot to add in terms of experience, but we have a lot to add in terms of zeal, perspective, encouragement you know um and we need one another we need one another Lincoln. yeah I'm, you know i'm like sitting here as one of the older brothers and man if i've been if i've done something <laughs> is this the way i've come across and uh and you know i don't know i i think i think the point is you know we just have to talk you know dialogue like like I'm an older brother, and you know, if if like some of the things that that you said, I mean, uh, I'm over critical or or you know, name drop or you know, I don't know stuff that you know doesn't is not helpful and it is sort of as younger brothers you find not helpful or whatever. You know, we we need to I need to know that because um, I'm you know I'm. You know, I, I don't always know how I how I come across, and you know, I am trying to you know trying to help the church, and, and I may not always come across the way I want to, you know, or maybe I do come across the way. You like that? You know, and even even the idea of, of you know maybe feeling trapped. You mentioned that too, but sometimes we can feel trapped and. and uh, I mean, honestly, sometimes I, I feel like I'll, I'll, I can break some things up sometimes, and, and I feel a lot of resistance. I don't feel openness. You know, it's like, oh, you know, you lived back then, and things are different. We live under a different paradigm now. The culture's changed. Things that work back then don't work now. That, that's all, like, really true. But there are, you know, there are, other, are sort of general truths that transcend culture and time as well. I don't think any of us really totally know, you know, what those things are. And then anyway, my, my point is, I, I think it's just, I think it's the important thing just to dialogue and be open. And, yeah. And the community and, and you know, sort of be open. To, <coughs> and not to judge each other. You know yeah. What I mean? that's, that's kind of the thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think one of the things that is like, Most of us in here, who I don't want anyone to raise their hand, but most of us in here will all feel like I had a really good idea of no one listen. It's not unique to, <laughs> to, to the <laughs> <laughs> And Lord knows I felt that. 
I'm like, I got this incredible idea. Just listen to me. And I, and I got a picture for seven months. I got it. Okay, they hated it this way. Let me say it this way. Let me package it this way. And I just keep going back and forth like, what am I here? Let's localize the community groups. No! And you were like, okay, let's just... Anyhow, Juan. <laughs> yeah, just to click on what you said, because I was going to say that also, like, um, like you said, like, you know, have open dialogue, you're trying to judge yourselves. And you, you also mentioned this before, making assumptions. Not gonna lie, do that all the time. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Well, I learned it by my, from myself that I gotta, I was like, humble myself, but kind of listen and ask questions what context are people coming across and what they're saying. Uh, because uh, sometimes when we t- try to come across, we always, uh, uh, we always want to come across like, uh, oh, wait, I'm saying this. I'm not trying to insult anybody or say something offensively. So trying we try to like uh, say something good or make some comment that and sometimes people take that context a 